The following Bible study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Let's get to it. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. If you were with us on Sunday, we did a bit of an intro to Song of Solomon. And uh, um, it's one of the books that uh, a lot of churches avoid because it's a little bit rated, well, PG-30. 30 because the, the messianic, or I should say the rabbis, the rabbis actually um, taught that you couldn't be reading the Song of Solomon until, as a man, you couldn't read it until you were 30 years of age. They had sort of a rule because it was so graphic uh, and it, it dealt with uh, very um, intimate and even some would say erotic kind of issues. And it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, in our culture, we sort of blush at Song of Solomon. Uh, but at, meanwhile, we watch the Super Bowl halftime. <laughs> Good night. Uh, I, I, I hate to be sounding like a religious prude or anything, but it was pornographic. It was like crazy level weird. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, uh, we're in this weird dichotomy uh, in this culture where we over-sexualize everything, but at the same time we're in the Me Too era and generation where, you know, rightly, people that have done creepy things are being called out. That's good. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, one minute we're, we're, you know, we'll hear about, you know, sex trafficking and human trafficking there around the Super Bowl. They say apparently that, you know, it's rampant in whatever city the Super Bowl is in on any given, any given year. And everybody sort of shakes their head and wonders about that. Meanwhile, you've got sexploitation going on in the, right there in the Super Bowl. Images of women in ropes and children, girls in cages, like, Really? Uh, and it's just, it's, to me, it's this sad, sad condition of our culture. And we could talk about the reasons it's bad um, that we do that kind of stuff, more of a pornographic, sexualized deal. We could talk about many reasons, um, and there's not enough time in the evening to talk about all those things. But one of the things, one of my complaints is that, of many, there's, there's hundreds, but one of my complaints is that, um, that, True, beautiful sexuality invented by God inside of marriage, well, it's, it's hard for our younger people to get their head around what that even looks like. By the time a young man gets married in our culture today, he's already been exposed to all kinds of sexual images and what a, what a sexual woman should look like according to the world. And there's this preconceived idea, and much of it's not even close to reality, let alone pure or good, but, but there's just sort of this mess in our minds that has happened. And then people wonder why sexual intimacy and sexual confusion and gender identity issues, we wonder why we have all kinds of problems in the area of sexuality. And psychology tries to keep up with it, but they do a horrible job, honestly. Um, the truth is, um, we, we need to get back to the basics, and that's what I love about the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a, a book sort of on romance. And if we can sort of peel back all the weirdness of our culture and the over-sexualized things that we see around us and peel back all the, the dirtiness of sex um, and see what God intended it to be. 
and it was meant to be a beautiful thing. And by the way, I always like to remind people, um, when is sex right and when is sex wrong? It, it has to do with marriage, within the bounds of marriage. And that means, you know, one marriage, not polygamy like Solomon. Um, so we have to realize that Solomon's going to be writing from sort of a, a perspective. But I'll tell you about that in a second. But the idea is, you know, um, they're in the Garden of Eden. The Lord said that there was one man, one woman, and they would be married and they would stay together for life. And the marriage bed, the Bible says, is undefiled. It's meant to be a beautiful thing. And, and the problem is, a lot of young couples go into it thinking, man, is it dirty? Is it evil? And, and, and people get all weirded out and there's a lot of dysfunction intimately and romantically because of all the things the world throws at us. So maybe you just pray, Lord, give me the pure version of this book of what what real romance and what real love is really about. And that's where the Song of Solomon really does do us a favor. Um, We learn from this book from so many perspectives, and, and there's so many good things about this, um, this Song of Solomon. Now, um, the, the thing that you need to understand about inter- the interpretation of the book, when you're rightly dividing the word of truth, when, when you and I are to read the Song of Solomon, what are we supposed to see here? Well, if you're jotting down notes, jot down, there's four main things that, that we look at Song of Solomon. There's probably more than this, but first of all, number one, it is a story. It's a story. It's a song, but it's a song and a story. You might even call it an opera, for those of you that are into the opera. Um, this is like an opera. Um, and it's a story, uh, and, and in a nutshell, it's, it's like this king who becomes sort of not wanting to be seen as a king, so he goes out sort of, um, you know, hidden as a shepherd. Uh, so he's this, he's, he's this shepherd guy that comes out, um, and all the people see him, but he meets this beautiful young maiden, and she thinks he's a shepherd, but she senses something special about him, and they fall in love. And he gets to know her as one who's working in the vineyards and, and they're among the shepherds and the sheep and, and they fall in love and eventually he'll come and take her to the palace and she'll realize he's the king. Um, it's, it's a beautiful story. And, uh, and, and it's sort of in an opera form. By the way, Solomon, we know how many songs he wrote. How many songs have you written? <laughs> so you're like, I don't write songs. Well, it's interesting because I wonder, Solomon wrote 1,005 1, songs. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, 1,005 1, 1, 1, songs did he write. We know that from 1 Kings, by the way, um, chapter 4, verse 32. Solomon wrote those, those songs. But one of the things you'll notice, um, this is called the Song of Solomon, or some of your translations call it the Songs of Songs. Song of Songs? Like, is it the song of all songs? Well, probably the idea is there, it's the song of all of Solomon's songs. In other words, it might have been his favorite. Um, The song that he wrote, this opera, this song, this poetry, um, could have been his favorite. Um, But this, this was, in fact, number one, a story. Number two, it was an allegory for Israel, for the Israeli people. One of the things you should know about God's relationship with the Jews, and some people say God's done with the Jews. Well, he's not. Um, And there's reasons you should know this. Um, Just read the book of Hosea. Um, Even though, you know, Gomer, Hosea's wife, kept being unfaithful and prostituting herself. Remember, Hosea just kept taking her back, taking her back. 
And, um, and Hosea was an example of how God loves his people, Israel. Even though they walked away from him time and time again, he would take them back and love them. And God made an everlasting covenant with Israel. Don't let people tell you that God's done with Israel. The church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. It's just not true. But what's interesting, if you follow the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible version of, of that love relationship from God to his people Israel, Israel's called the wife of God in, in the, the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and that's kind of the relationship God has with his people, sort of the wife of God. That, uh, you can see it all throughout the Bible, and you can see it in that ex- example in Hosea. But the Jews looked at the Song of Solomon as an allegory of the love that God has for them. Number three, not only it, it's just a plain, beautiful story, it's an allegory for Israel. Number three, it's an allegory for the Christian church. While Israel is called the wife of God, the church is called the what? The bride of Christ. Um, so it's also an allegory for the Christian church. Um, in fact, it's interesting because, um, you know, this tr- you know, Jewish tradition and the Mishnah, the, t- the Talmud, the t- Targum and all this stuff, they wrote about this uh, wife of God relationship with Israel. But very early in the church fathers, they began to write of this love relationship between the, the bride of Christ and the bridegroom, Jesus. Um, you know, Origen wrote about it, Bernard of, um, of uh, Clairvaux, um, Augustine and others, Jerome, Origen. These guys all wrote about this idea of us being the, the, the bride of Christ, a love relationship. And that's what we talked much about on Sunday, by the way. If you missed that teaching, we looked at this, uh, this section. But, but uh, it's, it's all an allegory of the, of the church. So it's a story, it's an allegory for Israel, it's an allegory for the church, but, but you know, fourthly, finally, it's a manual for marriage. Um, there's good insight of what a love relationship should be like, what it should look like. And for those of you that are married, or some of, some of you that may be married someday, or hope to be married someday, um, you should look at this book as sort of a manual on marriage. Um, what a good, loving, romantic relationship looks like. And so uh, that's kind of the introduction of this, this beautiful book of poetry. And we've been in the books of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all books of poetry here in the Bible. But it says here in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is an ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me in his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. One of the things that we found as a challenge, and we talked about this on Sunday, when you read the Song of Solomon, probably the greatest challenge maybe, and some people get frustrated with this book because sometimes it's difficult to know who is talking at, in, in this opera, or I should say singing uh, in this opera, this, this song. We don't know who's really singing all the time. It's, it's a bit of a trick figuring out who is speaking. And so I'll do my best to share this with you. Now there's some, there's some tricks to know about who's talking. Um, there's the beloved who's talked about. And whenever you hear about the beloved, 
you have to understand we're probably talking about the bride, the woman. The man is referred to as the lover, um, and uh, there's also a group of friends that are women. There's also a minor group that might be singing along once in a while in a group are the brothers of the beloved. So those are the main, you know, characters. But the main protagonist in this story is uh, the beloved, this, this, this uh, Shulamite woman. We're going to find out she's a woman from Shulam. Well, where's Shulam? There's debate on that. Where was this woman from? Uh, you know, some people say Shulam was an ancient name for Jerusalem, you know, and so they see a connection there. There, there may have been a place called Shulam, uh, up north, uh, closer up into the Galilee region, where this may, this maybe she was from this area, but she's called the Shulamite woman. And um, she's the protagonist. She's the one who the, the king, the shepherd, the king shepherd, we'll call him, um, he'll come and, and, uh, and see her and fall in love with her. Um, and so she'll be talking or singing from, at any given time. But Solomon, the shepherd king, will also be singing. Um, and then the friends will chime in once in a while. So here's an example. In verse 1, it's just sort of like the narrator, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. But as soon as verse 2 kicks into gear, the shepherd king kicks into, into gear. And the shepherd king is actually um, uh, speaking right out of the gate about his devoted love for, uh, for his beautiful girl. Um, so let's, let's, let's look. Verses 2, 3, and 4 or the first part of verse 4, it's definitely the, the shepherd king talking. He starts off, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Um, wait, what did I say, the shepherd king? I'm already wrong. See, I told you. You're like, Brett, the Bible's not confusing. You are. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's the, sorry, the woman. Uh, um, <laughs> so, so let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, some of you are already checked out. I know some of you people. Oh, we're talking about smishy-wishy kisses. This is gross. Get a room. Um, others of you are really into this. Uh, and you're like, oh, how romantic, you know. Um, it's interesting to me how there's different personalities. And some of us get this and some of us don't. But um, you got to try to get this because this is more than just a love story. You should say, I'm not into love stories. Well, you should be because you're part of the story. Remember, this is talking about how our bridegroom, you know, Jesus Christ uh, loves us. Um, question, is there a, a kiss relationship between Jesus and his church? Well, that's interesting. Um, there's a bunch of things we could talk about this. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things we could talk about is greeting each other with a holy kiss. Now, this is something that people say, Brett, are we supposed to do that? The Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss. Um, now, there's, a, there, there's debate on what, what that looks like. Um, and there's some churches and even some cults that take this too far. And man, you kiss everyone in the church. There's places that does that. I don't believe that's the idea. When you go to the Middle East, and I've been there a, a bunch of times People kiss each other to greet them, and it's, not, it's nothing weird. It's just cultural. Um, uh, I used to go to this, uh, take our Israel trip uh, to a, a, one of those Myrtlewood, Olivewood sh uh, stores, and there was this one old feller, um, Mr. Nissan was his name, and he's an Arab guy that lives in the, in, uh, the Palestinian section of uh, Jerusalem. So I'd bring our groups there because he had the best olive wood stuff. And, but every time I'd bring our group in, he'd say, oh, Pastor Brett, and he'd come running up and he'd give me a big kiss. Mm -hmm. 
oh, right on the cheeks, you know, and the, the, the Athey Creekers are like, what's Brett going to do? Well, I'm trying to blend in, you know, with the uh, the, the Middle Eastern, uh, you know, kind of thing. So I'm just like, hey, Mr. Nissan, you know, it's like, and then he always gives me some kind of olive gift, olive wood gift. But, but that's sort of the way of that part of the world, is you give each other a kiss on the cheek. Now, I love how the New Testament says, you know, we're to greet each other with a holy kiss. Uh, that's important. Um, no no uh, weirdness in the church that way, of course. But I think the idea is to greet each other with warmth and, and love and kindness. That's the church, as far as the church and our relationship with each other. But when it comes to kissing our Savior, Jesus, do we kiss? It's interesting because the word worship in the Greek language, it actually is an interesting word that goes like this, proskuneo or proskuneo. Uh, is the way the Greek language puts it out there. And it can also be meant like this, to turn and kiss. Uh, The word worship is linked to that notion of turning and kissing the Lord. And, you know, if you're a married couple, you know that that's part of the deal. You know, that you, you kiss each other goodbye and you kiss each other when you say hello. And, 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 and romance, kissing is part of the deal. And there's this love relationship that the Lord wants to have with you. And worship is one of those sort of expressions of that kind of love. And I I hope that we all are people that know how to turn and kiss the Lord. I hope you're a kisser of the Lord in the best sense of the word. How does that look? A worshiper. Some of you perhaps come to church and you say, well, I'm here for the Bible study. And as soon as this music nonsense is over, uh, then we'll get into the real stuff that the church is about, you know. And you're, maybe you're not really wired to be passionate about the Lord. But do you know that the Lord is interested in having a personal relationship with you? And if you have a personal relationship with the Lord, when exactly does it get personal? When does it get intimate? I believe the most intimate times you can have with the Lord, there's, there's actually a couple, maybe three. Um, uh, I'll tell you what the top favorite three things where you are intimate with the Lord. Number one um, is when you worship by song and lifting your hands and, and with passion, glorifying God with our songs and our, our praise music. That's one. Two, of course, the table of communion. There might just be no more intimate time between you and the Lord than when you go to the table of communion and remember what he did on the cross for you. I believe baptism is one of the ordinances also that there's, there's something that happens there at the waters of baptism I've found where people, man, there's just this intimacy with the Lord. They sense the Lord in their life and the power of God moving upon them. And it's just such a powerful thing. Baptism is one of the funnest things I get to do as a pastor. Um, to see the Lord moving in the hearts of his people and taking the plunge in the, you know, frigid waters of the Willamette River. It's just always a beautiful thing. But intimacy with, with Jesus, he wants to know you personally. And if you don't know Christ, or if you're just mathematically knowing about Jesus, you know, do you know that Satan knows Jesus, uh, knows about him, but Satan doesn't have that personal relationship with him. That's the difference. So it's not good enough just to know about Jesus and know all the, you know, ins and outs of the Bible and have your mathematics down scripturally, but the Lord wants to know you personally, and there needs to be an intimacy there that's called for. And so we have to kind of get into that mode as we start reading about kisses and all the other things we're going to read about in this. But here the woman is saying, you know, let him kiss me with his kisses of his mouth for thy love is better than wine. So the first thing is his kiss. 
But also, we also see number two, his attraction. Look there at verse four, draw me, we will run after thee. Man, um, there's like a, a chase uh, going for this, uh, this, this king, shepherd king kind of thing. And she's willing to run after him. The king hath brought me into his chambers. That's number three. We got his kisses, number one, his attraction, number two, and number three, his intimacy, uh, number three. It says there, the king hath brought me into his chambers. That's where it starts getting very personal and very intimate. We'll be glad and rejoice. Um, and, um, and you've got this beautiful, beautiful romance beginning. Now, by the way, there's a question about when the timing of all this. Is this verses one through four kind of, um, you know, sort of the end of the story, and then they're going to kind of rehearse the rest of the story? There, you'll, you'll notice there'll, there'll be some order of events that are kind of tricky on some of this too. Um, but don't let that bother you at this point. We'll get into that as we keep going. Um, now, the, the, most of your Bibles, some of them, not all of them will agree. And that's what I told you on Sunday. Some of your Bibles have, is it the beloved or is it the, the lover? Or some say him or her or they, them, the people. Uh, it, it just, just as you're going through with your Bible, be careful because nobody agrees on all who's talking at any given time. But some would say that the, the last part of verse 4 is where the friends, uh, the women or the virgins of Jerusalem... If you can picture in the opera, there's the beloved and the lover, the shepherd king, but there's also a choir of friends from Jerusalem, these women singing over here and chiming in once in a while. And they believe uh, whenever the word we, uh, speaking in the plural, it might just be the choir of women from Jerusalem. Are you guys with me on that? So you look for that. That's a sign of when the, the choir is singing sort of background stuff. Or it could be the brothers of this, or the sibs uh, of, the, of, the, of the beautiful girl. And we'll, we'll show you some of that too. But most scholars agree that the last part of verse 4 is the friends, where it says, we will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Um, so it's, it's speaking of those that are looking from the outside in, that there's something that's beautiful about what's happening. And, it's, and they love what they're seeing. It's a beautiful thing, more beautiful than wine. Um, uh, and the upright love this whole situation. So that's kind of the idea. Thy love, uh, it says, uh, is more, more than wine. Um, it's interesting because um, that's something that's a theme here in this, uh, is better than wine. Remember when we were in Ecclesiastes and Solomon tried everything under the sun? And he said, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Remember when he said, vanity is, uh, um, is drinking alcohol. Remember he said, it's all, I, I, I eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And he said, it's all vanity. In uh, Song of Solomon 4, verse 10, um, you know, the king shepherd says, how fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine? So he's sort of saying there's something better than wine. And uh, um, your love is better than wine is what he's saying. And it's, and it's a theme of the book of Solomon. And that's kind of what it starts out there, even as these choir girls are singing, thy love more than wine. And the reason that's important is because, um, you know, as a Christian, uh, we get to be filled with the Spirit and not with wine, the Bible says. Ephesians tells us that. The world goes to wine to, to loosen themselves up and to, to um, be, you know, comforted or to find peace or whatever. But isn't it interesting, the relationship between the lover and the beloved is what's better. 
And that's true for you. Your relationship with God, your love for Jesus, you'll find it to be better than the things of this world to try to satisfy. And that's what this choir sort of chimes in to sing. So then in verse 5, we go back to the woman, the beautiful uh, Shulamite woman. Um, And she gives us the next thing. Remember first we saw his lips and his kiss there in verse uh, 2. We saw his attraction and his intimacy. But now we're going to see her trouble, her trouble in verse 5. She says, I am black, but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. Now, she's not talking about race here. Uh, Don't be confused. She's talking about something that was in those days culturally. You didn't want a suntan. You didn't want your son kissed uh, skin. You didn't didn't go fake and bake uh, or any of that stuff. Um, In fact, it was considered to be beautiful to have lily white skin. And if you'd go out into the sun, you were considered like a slave girl. You were known to be, oh, she's just a slave. And it was, it was sort of a cultural thing. The, the tanner you were, probably the more of a worker you or a slave you were. And so it was a status thing. And so she's almost apologetically saying, man, I'm, I'm, my trouble is I'm, I've got a suntan. Um, and she says, I, I'm black as the, the tents of Kedar. The tents of Kedar were made of goat skins, by the way. And the goat skins there in the Middle East... Um, that were used for those tents were black. And so these black tents would litter the hillsides of the, of the mountains of Israel. And she's so saying, that's, that's my skin, that black, or the curtains of Solomon. Um, but don't look up at me because I'm black. Um, she says, I'm comely. She's got sort of a healthy view of herself. She knows she's pretty, but she also knows she's maybe considered flawed in some way, shape, or form. Like we talked about on Sunday, the shepherd king never notices her flaws. She's the only one who notices her flaws. And that's the way of Christ. Christ takes your sin, puts it as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers your sin no more. We say, oh, but Lord, I'm blackened with sin. But we remember what we're going to read here in a few weeks in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. Um, That's what the Lord Jesus, our bridegroom, does for us. And that's what this bridegroom's going to do for her. She's saying, oh, my skin is black. He's not even going to notice that. But um, why was her skin black? Well, it's kind of a Cinderella story. It seems that her brothers made her do the work of all the home. Did you see that? My mother's children, and that was probably her brothers. It says, they made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. She's been too busy helping everybody else that she hasn't been able to tend her own vineyard. And these are the things that she said, here's my problems. I've got dark skin. I've been helping everybody else. My own vineyard's out of commission. Uh, but we're going to see the, the, the king is going to not notice those things. So we see uh, her trouble in verses 5 uh, through 6. But then, uh, what are we on? Number 5, number 1, her, his kiss. Number 2, attraction. Number 3, intimacy. Number 4, her trouble. And then number 5, we see the pasture where the sheep are. Check it out, verse 7. She continues... Tell me, O thou, whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? 
She's basically saying, where can I find you? Um, don't let me be just as an, a normal stranger. How can I find you? Um, this love relationship, how can I get a hold of you? Uh, what's your number? <laughs> That's kind of the idea here. And notice now he's going to answer her there in, um, in, in verse 8. He says, If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth and, uh, by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels and thy neck with chains of gold. Now, the king, the shepherd king here, he, he says, if you want to find me, just go where the sheep are. <laughs> I love that. That's a biblical theme too, isn't it? That um, the shepherd is always where the sheep are. And that's where we find Jesus. It's, it's a story that's the, the scarlet thread throughout the whole Bible. Remember when they were looking for the king of Israel and Saul was the evil king and Samuel came and into the house of Jesse and said, hey, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And they got all the sons lined up and they said, you know, Samuel said, no, 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 no. And none of the sons were the one. And, and, and he says, are these all your sons? And it's, it's almost like, yeah, that's all. Oh, well, there's one little runt out there. Where is he at? Watching the sheep. That's where you're going to find the good king. And that's where you're going to find the great leader. And that's where you're going to find the one who loves the sheep and cares for the, the flock. That's the good shepherd. David was a good shepherd, but Jesus was called the great shepherd. When you read John's gospel, chapter 10, it's all about the shepherd, Jesus. Um, so you even see this correlation here in the Song of Solomon of the shepherd king, which is our king as well. And where is he to be found? With the sheep. This is, by the way, kind of a sideline thing on this, but um, where do you find the, the shepherd? Um, some people have this argument, I don't need to go to church because the church is flawed or the church has sin in it, and it does. And people in the church are sinful and, and we're just a bunch of sheep, smelly, kind of stupid sheep. But somehow the Lord, the good shepherd, loves the smelly little sheep and he's got a heart for them, and he's there to care for them. And, and even if one goes and gets into, caught in the thicket, he'll go and leave the 99 and find the one little lamb and rescue it. That's what the Lord does. Like he's, he's got this beautiful heart for the flock. And when people say, I don't like being in the flock, I don't like being with the church of Jesus Christ, I, I kind of worship God on my own and do my own thing. You're just wrong in that. One of the things you and I are to do is to be a part of a flock of sheep. He's the good shepherd. And it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the custom of some is. For whatever reason, people make up excuses of why they don't gather with God's people. But that's what God wants us to do. And there's so much that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to love one another and serve each other, help each other. We're supposed to encourage one another and build each other up. And we're supposed to lead them to the good shepherd and lead each other to the good shepherd, Jesus. I love how his answer is, you'll find me with the sheep. Wherever the sheep are, that's where you'll find me. And that's where she's going to go to meet him. Then he pays her this beautiful compliment in verse 9. He says, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, what would Solomon know about Pharaoh's chariots and horsemen? Anybody know that? Do you remember... He had a collection of his own, um, which was kind of a bummer because if you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and 18, it says there that, you know, God said, when your king is over Israel, make sure that he doesn't multiply wives to himself. What did Solomon do? 
Uh, make sure and don't get a bunch of horses and chariots, especially from Egypt. What did he do? He went down to Egypt and got tons of horses and chariots. And then also don't multiply silver and gold unto yourself. And what did Solomon have? More silver and gold than anybody. So Solomon, when he, when he sinned, he went big. He went huge. Um, he, he, he went off the rails on these things. But one of the things he did do was go down to Egypt, as the scriptures tell us, and got these most powerful and beautiful horses from Egypt. That's why he went to Egypt. The Egyptians had been breeding horses for centuries, and um, they were majestic. And the ones that drew the chariots were um, powerful and beautiful. And that's what he's basically saying about his beloved, this girl. He's saying, man, you've got the beauty but the power of the horses uh, in Pharaoh's chariots. Now, I got to admit, some of these analogies that is in this love letter, this romance— it doesn't translate great in our culture. You, you probably, guys, just in, Valentine's Day is coming around the corner, and I wouldn't recommend saying, you're like a horse, honey, uh, that's drawing a chariot. And really watch out for chapter 4 of, of Song of Solomon. Your nose is as the Tower of Lebanon. Uh, your hair is as, you know, goat's hair. Uh, be careful. Uh, you're not telling her she needs to get a new conditioner and uh, go to a salon. Um, but but you got to understand, the language here would have been appreciated 3,000 years ago. That, that's the thing we have to remember. This was, this was 3,000 years ago when this was being written. Um, things have changed a little bit, and what, what people thought was beautiful, and uh, the analogies, what they mean, we, we lose some of that in our modern-day culture. But basically, he's saying strength and beauty. That's what he sees in her, verse 9. And then verse 10, thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. Now, what, what he's talking about here is what we might call a head, headdress, uh, like a princess would have. They'd put on a headdress, and around her neck and on her hair and on her forehead, there would be jewels, and it would be sort of this apparatus that would be put over her head and shoulders um, like the Egyptians, if you, if you see, they had, they had headdresses and gold plates and jewels. I mean, it was something to behold. And he's saying, you have this beautiful uh, headdress of gold and, and around your neck chains with gold and studs of silver. So some of you might be saying, Brett, she's still got the suntan. She's still working in the vineyard. She's still walking around the sheep. What's going on? Well, that's the interesting thing. I, I wonder if this is here because the shepherd king sees her not as she is, but in her potential, the potential that she will have. It's a little bit like you and me. You and I say, Lord, man, we're black with sin and we're, and we're dirtied by this world. And how can you love us? The Lord says, I don't see that. But what I see, you're robed in righteousness and you're perfect before me. He sees you in your potential. He puts away your sin and he sees you with decoration, if you would. That's kind of the idea here. That's how God rolls. I'm so thankful the Lord is able to see us in our potential because that's, that's the only way uh, we'll get into heaven, by the way. But he sees her with gold and chains of, around her neck and jewels uh, uh, on her cheeks. Now we have uh, here the, the women or the choir, verse 11, we will make the borders of gold with studs of silver. So if you can picture the, the man singing, man, you'll, you have chains of gold around your neck and on your head. And then the choir says, yeah, and we will make the borders of gold with studs of silver. What's, what's that? The, the women of Jerusalem? 
One of the things in all the weddings that I've done, you know, whenever the wedding before it happens, uh, we usually go down and I pray with the groom and all the groomsmen. And then I go into the separate area and I go pray with all the bridesmaids and the bride. And I've noticed there's a big difference that goes on in the bridal dressing room than the, the groom dressing room. Big difference. None of the guys are helping each other in the groom dressing room, getting on their tux, and they're all just standing around. It takes them like two minutes to get their tux on. They're good to go. But I've noticed in the bridal dressing room, man, there's blow dryers and curling irons and stuff that I don't even know what it is laying all around. And, and man, you can smell the perfume and the hairspray and the whatever they're using, uh, the products and stuff. And, and, and all the ladies come around and they're decking her out and getting her ready. And it's part of the deal. That's what these women of Jerusalem are saying. They're going to come and beautify the girl. They're going to, they're going to assist. And, the, you know, the king's saying, you're, man, you're decked with gold and silver. And they said, hey, we're going to help with that. Um, that's, that's what these women of Jerusalem are saying. And by the way, that's what you and I are supposed to be doing with each other. You and I, we're called the bride of Christ. And part of your job, and this is where you being the lone Christian that never goes to church and never helps people, you're, one of your jobs is to beautify his church. Are you making the church more beautiful? Are you building up and encouraging and blessing? Or are you doing nothing? Or are you just kind of there as a consumer? Man, I come to church so I can get something. And hopefully you get, give me something. Um, man, part of your job is to beautify the church and to help and chip in. That's what you're called to do. Um, that's, that's what these, the choir does. They say, we're going to help beautify you. God forbid that you're one that makes the church uglier gossiping or talking about things or, you know, complaining or ugly stuff. Hopefully you're not doing that, but, but you're, you're there to beautify his church. That's the idea. Well, all that to say, um, I love how this choir chimes in. Hey, we'll help. We'll help make her even more beautiful with studs of silver and borders of gold. Well, the woman continues now in verse 12. She says, verse 12, while the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of Engedi. She's talking about how she's ready to be with him. She smells beautiful with the fragrance of spikenard, and the, the fragrance is flowing. Um, a bundle of myrrh, and myrrh was one of the most coveted of substances, and she, she had a bundle of myrrh, um, it says, um, and, and it's valuable. A bundle of myrrh is valuable. And she's saying, my beloved, the shepherd king, he's like the bundle of myrrh. And when she says there, um, he shall lie all night betwixt my breast, some of your translations, and it probably should read actually, it, what's that? It shall lie between, all night between my breasts. You're saying, bro, what are we talking about? Um, it's basically saying that he is close to her heart. Um, he's like a bundle of myrrh that she holds close to her heart. That's, what, that's what's being said there in a poetic and sort of erotic kind of way. But that's what she feels toward him. She, she loves him with that kind of love and she values him. Uh, the bundle of myrrh is something we don't really value. Like a bundle of myrrh, what is that? Um, but it was valuable. And she said, that's what he is to me, valued. Boy, I hope that that's true with your heart for the Lord. I hope you have Jesus close to your heart. Um, our beloved, you know, uh, King, shepherd king. I hope that we hold him close to our heart. How can you love Jesus? How can you fall in love with Jesus? Well, Jesus taught us there on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, 
where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, she says this bundle of myrrh was like a treasure to her, and, and she treasured it and held it close to her heart. And that's what a Christian should do. We, we, we treasure Christ. How do you treasure? Whatever you put your treasure in, that's what you're going to love. So if you pray, seek the Lord, spend time in his word, be with God's people and plug into the church and be involved with congregational life, then that's, Jesus is going to be your treasure and he will be close to your heart. You will be in love with Christ because your treasure is there where your treasure will be. But if it's golf or if it's soccer on Sunday instead of church, and if it's, it's um, you know, um, just hanging out watching TV all day, that's where your treasure is. You'll fall in love with stuff that you don't even really want to be in love with. But it's, it's up to you what you're going to be in love with. It's true with anything. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be, good, bad, or ugly. But here she says, my beloved is like a treasure, this bundle of myrrh that she holds close to her heart. The second part of what she said, she said, my beloved is as a cluster of campfire in the, uh, that's a, by the way, that's a cypress kind of tree. It's a beautiful shade tree that does grow sort of in the desert oasis is the idea there. This campfire, she says, um, he's like a cluster of campfire in the vineyards of En Gedi. En Gedi is a place I take our tour to Israel. Uh, it's one of my favorite spots. It's, it's, it's a bummer because it's hard to go to today because um, there's now with tourism booming in Israel, it's really hard to go to En Gedi. There's thousands of people there. And I remember when we used to go there back in 2003, 2004, we were the only ones there. We'd, we'd hike all the way up to the top and sit down on the rocks, swim in the river and just have a blast. Can't even do that anymore. The, they've closed off some of the best areas. Um, and then there's, you know, thousands of school children that come and do um, uh, trips, field trips there. And so literally you're elbow to elbow with people as you're trying to hike through and Getty, And it's a little hard to see. But if you erase all the people you can see what she's talking about because En Gedi is it's called the spring of the goat. And En Gedi, that's what it means, spring of the goat. And these uh, mountain goats live there because it's the place where water flows out of just dry desert. And so there's this beautiful oasis, palm trees and these cypress kind of trees and shade and water. And it's just this beautiful place that's kind of out there in the middle of nowhere near the Dead Sea. And so she's saying, my, my beloved, you know, man, this shepherd king is like a, a, a tree that provides shade and covering and protection. And she loves that, like, like the cypress tree of En Gedi or the campfire tree in En Gedi. Um, all that to say, there's a picture here of what marriage is to be. Um, one of those pictures has to do with submission. Um, the Bible says, you know, that wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Right before that, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, submit yourselves one to another. So I believe a good marriage, a husband and wife submit to each other. That's kind of the way it works. But there is this notion of where the woman finds her great fulfillment, letting her husband be that covering. It's not a got to, it's a get to. Um, it's sort of like we choose to be under the covering of this roof right now. We could do our Bible study out in the parking lot tonight but that'd be stupid. It's wet and it's cold. Our Bibles would get soggy. We'd be out there shivering. Oh, we could be out there if we want to. But instead, you and I, we wisely chose to be under the covering of the roof of this building. That's what the word submission means, to be under the covering of something. And so this girl is saying, I love that my husband or this man, the shepherd king, 
is like this tree that covers. That's the idea, the shade there in Engedi in the middle of the desert. Um, it's a blessing to her that she gets to be under that covering. By the way, the Lord made, I think, guys, men, to, to want to be the covering. We, we actually want to take the hits, and we want to cover and, and protect. You know, and, and um, it's not that we think that, like, you know, modern-day wackoness is, uh, women can do everything men can do. And, and women, you know, uh, they don't need men and all this stuff. And, you know, men are being sort of, uh, you know, diminished in their value uh, in our current culture of male privilege and all that stuff. But it's, it, you know, all of this being a gentleman and stuff, it, it didn't happen because men thought women were incapable it's because men wanted to, to do the stuff that's harder and take the hits of this life so that she would be treated like a princess, like someone who did, you know, di- didn't need to have the, the troubles and the challenges of this life. It was meant to be a blessing, not a bummer. Somewhere along the way, I think the, the, the idea of submission became a huge bummer, but it was meant to be a blessing originally. And this is a, kind of an example of that. This woman saying, oh, man, my shepherd king, you know, the man, he's like this covering in the vineyards of Engedi, the shading of the tree under the desert. Well, then, then Solomon, shepherd king, says in verse 15, Behold, thou art fair. My love, behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. What in the world? Is he saying she's mediocre? Eh, you're fair. No, the word fair, uh, like the old way of saying she's a fair maiden, the word fair, if you look it up in the Hebrew, it's the word that is translated as beautiful. He's saying, you're, a, you're just beautiful, my love. Behold, thou art beautiful. And then he says, you, has, you have dove's eyes. Hmm, wonder what her eyes looked like. Um, were they beady and looking around? And it was like, <laughs> I don't know, but no. Um, there is a picture. The, the, the idea of a dove in the Bible, what is that a picture of? The Holy Spirit. Um, and that's what the church should have. We should have dove's eyes. We should have the Holy Spirit in us. When you accept Christ, before you were a Christian, the Holy Spirit was with you, the Bible says, tapping you on the shoulder, letting you know your need. When you accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. But then it says in Acts chapter 1 and 2, the whole story goes where the Holy Spirit will be upon you. And that's where the church gets its power. That's when the church is filled with the Spirit. And the manifestations of the Spirit come out through that. And that's beautiful to the Lord, having the Spirit move in his church. And I see a picture there. Well, verse uh, 16 and 17 now is the woman responding to him saying, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you have dove's eyes. And then she says, verse 16, Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. What are we talking about here? Is she like um, Chip and Joanna talking about beams and colors of bedding and stuff? No. Um, she's talking uh, in pictures when she says, yea, our bed is green. Um, the word green there, uh, I think the New International um, uses a word that we don't even use anymore. The, what is it? Verdant? Something? Uh, yeah. Um, and what that means is like a grassy, green, fresh field or a green, soft uh, bed of leaves is the idea. So she's saying our bed is fresh and beautiful is what she's saying. The beams of our house and of cedar, rafters of her, speaks of solidity and safety and covering. 
Um, So she's just complimenting their marriage, their home, their relationship as being fresh, green, powerful, strong, all of those things. Now, chapter two, uh, we'll kind of move through a little more quickly. And uh, I was planning on getting through chapter three and four as well. But uh, let's just attempt to finish chapter two. So um, the woman says, now, this is debatable, by the way. Who's speaking in chapter two, verse one, where it says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. There's huge debate, and, you're, and let's do a little poll with you guys in your Bibles. Of the Bibles in here, how many of your Bibles actually say who's speaking in verse 1 of chapter 2? Raise your hand. Okay. Of all you, how many does it say that the, the, the shepherd king, the man, is speaking? Raise your hand. Okay. There's a few, maybe 30 or 40 of you. Of all the, say it's the woman talking, raise your hand. Okay, see, it's most of you. But see, that's where, this is where people disagree. Translators disagree, scholars disagree, and you'll read different things. One of the reasons translators go right to this being Solomon is because of what is being said. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. You're the ones who sang the old hymns back when you were old, younger. Remember the, he's the lily of the valley. Remember that? So they're, oh, this must be the guy. But uh, contextually, most scholars that are like the, the Hebrew scholars, they say it's probably her speaking the first, the first verse. And then he jumps in in the second verse. Well, Brett, does this make me question my faith? No, this is no big deal. Everybody chill out. Uh, we, we can't figure all this stuff out. We're not sure on some of these things. But what I love about this, it doesn't mess up our doctrine or our understanding of God at all. So don't, I always love talking about this stuff and then reminding everybody, hey, it's no big deal. Um, we'll figure it out. And if you can't figure it out now, we'll know for sure when we get to heaven. So uh, most scholars say, she says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And then he says in verse two, as the lily among thorns, so is my beloved among the daughters of uh, the daughters. She's, he's basically saying of the daughters of Israel, um, you're the lily among the thorns. All other women are thorns. And by the way, that's what you as husbands That's what you should be thinking about your wife. She's the lily. All the other women are thorns. (laughs) She's your one and only. Um, You should only have eyes for her as all the old songs and stuff go. That's the way it should be. And this is the way he is. He thinks she's the most beautiful of all. Um, And then she says, verse 3, in fact, from verse 3 and on way down to verse 14, it's her now talking. So we can chill out for a second and realize she's going to get sort of... um, poetic here. It says in verse 3, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight or shade, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Man, she's, you know, reminds me of what the psalmist said about the Lord. Oh, taste and see the Lord that he is good. Um, That's kind of what she's saying, You you know, as she tastes of her relationship, she says, oh, he's good. Verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting, uh, the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. It's one of the things about Song of Solomon, you're going to recognize some of these verses. A lot of songs have been written and phrases used for various things. But the idea of the banner over me, the banner would be a, a, a flag or a, um, you know, sort of like a, a strip of, of cloth with two poles, and that, that banner would often over an army speak of that army's exploits and the great things that that army did. And they would do it with, you know, crests and symbols and, and words and stuff like that um, that would talk about some of his great, some of the, you know, the, that 
you know, group of soldiers, their greatest exploits. So when she says that his banner over me is love, that's, that's what she's saying. His greatest exploit, his greatest thing about her and him is their love one for another. His banner over me was love. And that's where we sing that song. His banner over me is love because we are his bridegroom. Um, verse 5, stay with me, flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Uh, that's the King James way of saying lovesick. You can almost read that the other way. I'm sick of love, whatever, get me out of here. No, she's lovesick is the idea. She's, she's sort of saying, keep the, 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 the flagons of wine coming and the, the feasting that I'm having in this love, keep it coming, she says. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head, his right hand doth embrace me. Uh, picture the cover of a romance novel. Uh, there they are. His, you know, his head is posture, hands right here, and his, his other hand, his uh, right hand is embracing. Verse 7, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by, by the rose and the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. You know, you know she, he's embracing her. He's sleeping in her arms. Don't wake him up. She's protective of him. She's defensive toward him and wants him to rest. Um, ladies, this is a good verse when your husband's trying to take a nap. <laughs> You're the one that's going to keep everybody away while he's... <laughs> that's, I love that verse right there. That's a life verse right there. <laughs> uh, don't let him wake up. Verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake, and he said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now, so what's going on is she's talking about how he's young and energetic, and he can you know, run like a deer, um, and uh, he's agile, but he runs and comes to get her, uh, hiding behind the lattice, sort of saying, Hey, come with me. And, and now in verses um, 10 through 13, um, or maybe even more, it's actually verses 10 through 14. We're going to see him telling her something, and she's telling us what he said. Are you confused yet? This is her saying, he said to me, and that's verse, uh, verse 10, my beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with her, uh, the tender grape give her good smell. Arise, my love, fair one, and come away. He's saying, come on, let's go. It's springtime. It's time to get up and go and enjoy what, what we have. Um, this is a good time for us to talk about this, as it's been fairly gray and rainy for quite a season here in the Portland area. Is anybody looking forward to spring? right about now. <laughs> uh, man, you know, living in this region, uh, you got to sort of learn to love the rain and, you know, just learn how to be cozy and get a cup of coffee and sit by a fire, read a book, whatever. But when the sun comes out, man, there's no more beautiful place, I think, than where we live uh, when spring comes. And there's just something beautiful about springtime and romantic about springtime. And that's kind of what's, what's being said. But I'm reminded of what the Lord tells us uh, through Paul in the book of Romans, he says in Romans 13, um, verse uh, 11, he says, knowing that it's now high time to awake out of our sleep, 
For now our salvation is nearer than when we believe. The right is, pardon me, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day and not rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife or envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. It reminds you of where the Lord is saying through Paul, wake up church. It's time to get up and go and be children of the light, no longer children of the dark. It's time to get going and, and love Jesus and walk with him. And that's what this is saying romantically here in Song of Solomon. Now, uh, verse 14. Um, she's again quoting the shepherd king here, verse 14. Oh, my dove, art thou in the clefts of the rock? In the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Um, so you've got uh, the cleft of the rock, and that makes an image of, remember Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock? And that's how you and I are saved. We can't stand before God or we would die, but, but when we're hidden in the rock, Jesus Christ, that's how we are able to be in God's presence. Great, great analogy. Don't have much more time to go through that. Now, some would say verse 15 could be her brother's speaking. Um, so again, debatable who's speaking in verse 15, but they say, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. And now she concludes this chapter, my beloved is mine and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bither. Um, so, you know, she kind of ends with this just uh, more love and how she's ready to go with him and, uh, and, and um, follow after her uh, beloved. So it's this very, very romantic opera that's, we're in the middle of it, and we'll get into some of the heavy-duty stuff uh, next week. You guys ready for that? Hide the kids next week. Uh, it's going to get crazy. <laughs> Let's pray. And Lord, how thankful we are for your word and how true and living and powerful it really is. And I would pray, Lord, that we would um, have a love and a passion for you, Lord, not just um, easily um, losing that passion and having just a cold dull relationship. Lord, may that never be true uh, for your church. So bless these, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry. You can do that by going online to our website, athecreek.com. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 